Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. We are going through the book of Hebrews. Um, It's one of the values that we have as a community uh, is to teach the Word of God, to be able to help us understand the entire context of what is being spoken. And uh, last week, we spoke about how the Word of God is powerful, how it divides, how it exposes, but also how it heals. This week, we are talking, um, well, I don't want to tell you what we're talking about right now because it's a bit of a surprise because it's a little different. So um, it is in Hebrews, though. Um, Hebrews 3 is the first time we hear the writer connect the idea of a high priest with Jesus. He mentions the idea of high priest in chapter 2, but in chapter 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, partakers of the heavenly call, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, God, as Moses was faithful in all of his house. And then we continue to talk about how Moses was faithful with regards to the law, and then we moved on to Joshua, and then we covered the Word of God, those, those two little verses in between that we covered last week. And so what he does is he teases, at the end of chapter 4, he teases this idea of the high priest, and he begins to talk about it, but it takes him four chapters to talk about exactly how Jesus is our high priest, um, and so it's, it's kind of a critical and multidimensional aspect of our faith in terms of how Jesus is our high priest and how that connects to the overarching story, our entire story of Genesis to Revelation. So we're going to pick up in Hebrews 4, verse 14. We left off in uh, chapter 4, verse 13 last week. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. And remember, we covered that when we dealt with the temptations of Jesus and why it was important that Jesus went through the temptations that we go through. So verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest is chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. He's not talking about Jesus now. He's talking about the high priest in the context of Israel that was chosen, appointed, and that can connect with him on a human level because he has the same weaknesses as they have. Because of this, because of the weaknesses and because he's prone to sin, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In other words, you can't just put your hand up and say, I want to be the high priest. You are chosen by God, appointed by God to be able to do that. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears 
to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who, all, to all who obey him. He was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So that's clear, right? No, it's not clear. It's not clear to us. It was a little clearer to the people that were receiving the letter because they would have had a connection to the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek, you don't even say Melchizedek in that way. It's like, a, it's like Melchizedek, you know what I mean? It's like that kind of guttural sound. But it doesn't make everything clear. To, to the Jewish race, what they would have understood as soon as they heard Melchizedek is they would have understood a connection to the father of their faith, Abraham. And so in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to talk about why it was important that Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to do that in two weeks' time in chapter 7. There's something phenomenally unique about this high priest, which the writer is trying to communicate to the Hebrews and then also to us. There's something unique about him because he is God-man, but there's also something unique about him because he is made in the order of Melchizedek. And so this is the only book that talks about Melchizedek. This is the only book that connects the fact that Jesus was a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so I'm, I'm teasing for two weeks. If you want to know the answer, come back in two weeks. You know? What is a high priest, though? So in general, I'm going to be looking at briefly what a high priest is and does this morning. He mediates a relationship between God and man. The high priest is also responsible for, priestly, for the priestly class and for their mediation. As the scripture says, he offers gifts and sacrifices in order to be made, um, in, in order to be acceptable. In the early church, anyone heard of a vicar? You know what a vicar is? A vicar comes from the Latin word vicarious, which is what most of us adults do, is live through our children vicariously. Um, and so if we haven't uh, succeeded in sports, then we push our children to succeed in sport, and we live through them vicariously. No one does that here, so that's okay. Um, but what it means is a substitute or deputy. This is hard for us in the individualized West to understand the idea of an intermediary. But an intermediary is someone that is better suited to gain you access and acceptance, not based on you or your merits, but on their relationship with the person that you want access and acceptance from. I'm going to say that again. It's someone that is better suited to gain you access or acceptance, not based on your merit, but based on their relationship with the one whose presence or access or favor you desire. I'll give you an example. I'll give you two examples. Um, John Mark has a wife, and her name is Madeline, and Madeline has a sister, and she works or used to work for CBS. And John Mark approached Madeline, who approached the sister, to say, hey, can we get tickets to a Charger game? And John Mark acted as a high priest on my behalf. <laughs> because I didn't have relationship with uh, Madeline's sister. I, I had relationship with Madeline, but not as much relationship as I had with John Mark. So John Mark acted as a substitute in order to gain me access and favor with Madeline's sisters so that I could receive those tickets. And it was, it was, it was great, you know. Um, 
How many of you are the younger child? Okay, you are all high priests. Because what happens with a younger child is the younger child acts as an intermediary between the older children and the parents. And the younger child gets sent out by the older children saying, go ask mom if we can have ice cream, you know? <laughs> Thinking that she has a greater degree of favor with the parents. And so the young child, those of you that are young children and have larger families will know, this is the idea that somehow, because they're the younger child, they have better access, better relationship with the parent, they will receive greater favor with that person. That's kind of how a high priest works. And that was the relationship that the Israelites had with a high priest when it came to the various sacrifices and systems. And so this morning, because he starts at the end of chapter 4 and goes all the way through to chapter 8 and dives in and out of high priest, that's all I'm going to say about the high priest. What I want to talk about this morning is the throne of grace. What I want to talk about this morning is how we have a better throne that we can approach. Verse 15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us with confidence or boldness draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The interesting thing, though, is that thrones are not designed to be welcoming places. Those of you that have traveled and maybe been to palaces or certain places where there are thrones or throne rooms, they're not designed to be welcoming places. They are a defining sign of the claim to power and authority. It's usually raised. It's designed to separate you and on a raised platform, there is now a raised chair, it's usually ornate, so that you understand a number of things. And, and what you want to understand when you, generally what people want to communicate to you when you walk into the throne room is this, you don't, you don't belong here. That's the whole idea, it's the, the idea of separation. It's meant to produce fear, insecurity, timidity, it's meant to rob you of your confidence. And generally speaking, there's two reasons why people have a throne. The one is, I am better than you. Be impressed by me. Okay, so we look at Solomon's throne. I mean, this is pretty impressive, right? And in Kings, we get the, I, I mean, there, there is a clear definition of how Solomon built his throne. The king also made a large ivory throne, covered it with pure gold. Six steps led up to the throne, and the back of the throne was rounded at the top. Two lions stood beside the armrests on both sides of the throne. Another 12 lions stood on both sides of the six steps. No other kingdom had anything like this. Be impressed by me. Look at what I have. Look at what a success I've made of my life. The other reason there are thrones is be afraid of me. Now, I have not watched Game of Thrones. I'm just telling you. But, I mean, within our collective consciousness, this is probably what we think of when we think of thrones, right? So apparently this is a throne that is made by the swords of their enemies. So the idea as you enter this throne room is this one of power dynamic. This one, be, be afraid. You, you don't understand who I am as I sit on this throne. And so the idea of thrones that we get used to is... 
be impressed by me or be afraid of me? When I was, uh, when I was working in human resource management, the idea of thrones and power dynamics was, was something that we were actively taught in terms of industrial relations that when we brought in the shop stewards, um, when we were negotiating a potential strike, do you guys know what shop stewards are? They represent the workers in the union. When we brought the shop stewards in, they would sit on this side of this massive boardroom table facing the windows, and we, not we, the, the organization had called the police, and the police were setting up with riot gear outside so that during the negotiations, the shop stewards could see that the riot police is ready for whatever is happening. There's a, there's a power play. It's like, I am more powerful than you. I want you to understand what is happening. As you enter this place, I want you to understand what is happening. And so, so the picture that we have of thrones, and also understand for the Israelites, the picture that they would have of thrones would be very similar. Be impressed by me, be afraid of me. And yet the writer says, with boldness and confidence, let us walk into the throne of grace, asking for mercy and grace in our time of need. Well, why can we do that? We can do that because this throne is unique. And it's unique because of what he says about Jesus. Because Jesus is the epitome of sympathy and the epitome of power. Generally, sympathetic people are not powerful, and powerful people are not sympathetic. It's a generalization, but that's, that's true. If you have power, you hold on to it. You're not sympathetic. If you're sympathetic, you just generally don't have power. I'm, I'm sorry. I can't do anything for you. I'm just really sorry that you're in this case. But, but what we have with Jesus is someone that sympathizes with our weaknesses and has the power to bring change to us. And he's done that because of two things. Number one, this throne is established because of what has already been accomplished and what has presently happened. What is already accomplished is what the writer says in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. Jesus has already defeated sin, Satan, and death. We know that from multiple New Testament writers where the Spirit of God helped us understand that Jesus' death put an end to the curse of sin, put an end to the power of Satan over us, and released us from the curse of death Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? But it didn't end there because there is a present and active work of Jesus because he has been resurrected. Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us that when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he exposed them to public disgrace by leading them on a triumphant parade. Very much like the idea of I am the one, Jesus, through my death and resurrection that have conquered every principality and power. But he is also presently doing something. He is with the Father, representing us and interceding for us. Right now, currently, presently doing that. Romans 8 verse 31 says, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. 
And then Paul continues, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? And he continues basically to say, no, none of that can separate you because of the past work of Jesus and the present work of Jesus. Seated on the throne of grace, next to the Father of lights, interceding on our behalf. That's why we have the ability, the desire to boldly go into the throne of grace. Jesus has capacity, desire, and ability. I want to say those three things are a combination you will not find in a human being. You might find a human being that has the capacity to love you, but not the desire, not the ability. You might find a human being that has the desire to love you, but doesn't have the capacity or the ability. And so the idea is that what we try and find is we try and find help from weak humans instead of going to the throne of grace to be able to find what we need in our time of need. Only Jesus has the desire, he wants to help us, has the capacity Everyone, at the same time, can come to Jesus and have their need met. And he has the ability, the power to be able to do that. Now, you might find a human being that can do that for one person. Maybe. But you cannot find a human being that can do that for ten people. My desire to love my family is definitely outstripped by my capacity and my ability. My ability to love my family is sometimes outstripped by my lack of desire. And so as we sit there, we say, Jesus, you have desire, you have capacity, and you have ability to give me what I need in my time of need. So how are we to approach this throne of grace? Not with a fearful posture. Just as... Karen and I were married in 1997. In 1998, we took a plane trip. It was a disaster. But on the back end of the plane trip, um, we, got to the, uh, we got to the counter, and the lady says to us, you have been involuntarily upgraded. And we were like, awesome. That's sweet. And so we got upgraded to business class. Not a big deal, because back then, business class was basically just a lazy boy, right? Um, not what you have now in business class, the whole pods and everything. And we sat there, and Karin refused to put her luggage in the overhead bin because she was convinced that at any moment, someone was going to come and tell her she was in the wrong place, that she did not belong, and, which is true, but I was like, oh, hey, yeah, that's right, that's right. Here I am. Yeah, I'll have some champagne. Yeah, I'll have knives and forks that are not plastic. Bring it on, baby, you know. And she was sitting there thinking, this is wrong. We don't deserve this. We don't belong. And there's a sense in which sometimes we approach God's throne of grace like that, with the sense of fear. Um, and, and, And part of our fear is the unknown, because We don't really know what's going to happen, but this is the challenge when it comes to approaching God with a sense of fear. The unknown is because maybe we are not very aware of the character of God. Because if we know the character of God, we will not be worried about whether we are welcome in the throne of grace. Sometimes we're fearful because we have this idea that that we don't belong. And in a sense, that is true because we are sinful human beings, 
but we belong because someone said we belong. And like me, I was like, yeah, I belong because she said I could be here. I knew that I didn't pay for this. I knew that I didn't belong there. But because she said I belonged here, I belong here. And we walk into the throne of grace knowing that we belong because Jesus says that we belong here. Not because we've done anything super dramatic. We walk in without a fearful posture. We don't walk in with an arrogant posture either. I uh, took Kiona to South Africa a couple of years ago and I was returning on my way back and um, again went to the counter and I received my, my ticket, paper ticket still, and, um, and it said premium economy on there. Oh, I was super excited. I hadn't paid for the premium economy. I was like, and this is now a couple of years ago. So premium economy now is better than business class was back then. And I was ready. And so, you know, uh, waiting in the, uh, uh, whatever, waiting there. And then, you know, as soon as the woman finishes, you know, as soon as she says first class, and then I come and stand to, at the front, right there, because I've got my premium economy tickets, right? sitting there. I'm feeling all good about myself. It's got this nice little silver lining on the top. You know what I mean? I'm like, check it out. Premium economy. And the lady next to me says, what are you doing here? And I said, it's premium economy. She's like, it's all premium economy. The whole flight is premium economy. <laughs> what they'd done is they'd taken the whole plane, because it was a 16-hour flight, and they'd made the entire plane premium economy. You know what I mean? And I thought I was special. I was not very special. But I went there with a sense of arrogance. Here I am, premium economy. <laughs> Check it out. And I felt about this big, right? About that big. We do that. God is legally committed to forgive me. I'm asking for something that's well within my rights. Didn't he say that? There's no sense of cost. There's no sense of holiness. There's no sense of the privilege of entering in the throne room. We forget it's a throne room. We have access, but we should not forget it is a throne room with a king seated on that throne. When Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. The angel comes, touches his mouth, and the angel says to him, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And like I said last week, I've, I've, been, I've been bathing in this whole idea of the angel comes to him, pursues him, cleanses him, and says, your sin is atoned for. He didn't ask for it. He just recognized that he was in a place that he didn't belong. He recognized that and he said, I, I don't belong here. And the angel says, you're right. You need cleansing. I will do it. Not jump through these hoops. Not do something, come back later when you're cleansed understand your guilt is taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Presumption is not gratitude. The idea that I belong is not gratitude. Groveling is also not gratitude. There's a sense of boldly coming to the throne of grace, understanding that I belong here because he said I belong here. Boldness is courage. And that courage comes from the fact that we are, assured, we are assured of the outcome of our presence because we know the character and work of Jesus Christ. 
And we may not understand exactly what's going on, but we do know this. We know that he's gentle and lowly, but he's powerful and strong. We know that about him. Arrogance is an unwarranted superiority. And the difference between bold and courageous people and arrogant people, well, there's a lot of differences, but one of the key differences is this. Bold and courageous people want others to come with them. Bold and courageous people are generally the people that are, that are saying, you will not believe what I have received that I did not deserve, that my sin has been atoned for, that my guilt has been taken away. Come with me. Arrogant people are people that want to keep things exclusive. Arrogant individuals want to exclude because the exclusivity of the event or the thing is what give, gives them worse, worth. I remember... Um, someone came to me and said, hey, I like your shirt. I said, hey, I'll get you one. This is where you can get it. I've also been in a situation where I said, hey, I like your shirt, and the person's like, thank you. <laughs> like, where'd you get it? A shop. <laughs> like, do you not want me to get a shirt like that? Oh, uh, no. I like it. It's unique. I don't want everyone wearing it. Do you, you guys remember Seinfeld with the glasses, right? right? It's the same idea. It's like once I have something that's a value, the fact that you have it too devalues it. That's arrogance. That's insecurity. But a bold and courageous person says, I found something of value. Come with me. Come and experience grace and mercy at the throne room of God. Come and experience a place unlike you will ever experience knowing that you shouldn't be here, but you're here because of the kindness of the person who sacrificed and is seated at the right hand beckoning you to come in. Come and experience that. We enter boldly, courageously, not arrogantly, and not apathetically. Apathy is not boldness or courage. Apathy, in fact, is not understanding or remembering where you are. You guys know that um, we're a fan of Downton Abbey. Actually, most British things. Uh, except for the food, and um, in general, you know. And, um, and I remember watching in, in Downton Abbey, and the, and the guy's um, being quite aggressive to his wife. And the dad says, you forget yourself, sir. And I'm like, that's such an interesting phrase. You forget yourself. And what, what he's saying to him is, you don't act like that. But what he's saying to him is, you forget that you are a gentleman and a husband and you don't behave in that way. You forget yourself, sir. And what happens is when we enter with arrogance, when we enter with a sense of apathy, there's a sense in which we have forgotten who we are. We've also forgotten who he is. And so there's a sense of like, yeah, that's awesome. We sing songs about sacrifice. We sing songs about holiness. We sing songs about eternity. And yet in, in reality, there, there isn't this the sense of privilege of actually understanding, wow, I can't believe I get to experience this. I can't believe I get to be here. I can't believe I get to invite others into this place. What do we receive when we boldly come to God's throne? Well, he tells us that we receive mercy and we find grace in our time of need. You've heard me say this before, that, that mercy is not getting something that we deserve. 
You deserve punishment, but you don't get it. Have any of you played the game of mercy? That's, that's also like a, it's like a high school thing. Stand up here, Mitch. You know? So the game, the game of mercy, right, is, yeah, there we go. See, I have the better position right now because my fingers are here, okay? So the game of mercy is that you actually bend the person's hands back until he cries mercy. I will and the not. Ga- okay, okay. <laughs> we had rules for those games, you know what I mean? Because my move was to do this and this, you know what I mean? Like quickly twist it, you're not allowed to twist it. Anyway. But, but the thing was, was like, you cry mercy when you want something to stop. So, you don't, you don't say mercy because you want more of something. That's grace. God, give me grace because I need more. You cry mercy when you want something to stop. And so, there's, there's a sense in which, in which w- with regards to our, the punishment that we have received from, f- because of our sin, that has stopped. We have received mercy. Now, Paul was a man who murdered Christians, arrested Christians before he came to faith. He was a person that was responsible for the separation of families. He was a person that needed to receive mercy from God. And he writes this in Timothy. He says to Timothy, one of his sons in the faith, after he's come to faith, Paul is recognizing how much mercy he has received. And he says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. In other translations I love, it says, of whom I am chief. I am chief sinner. Of whom I am the foremost. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because of his old lifestyle, not recognizing who Jesus was, um, arresting and detaining and not necessarily by his own hand, but I mean, we know that Paul was there when they stoned Stephen. So in a sense, in modern light, he would be an accomplice to murder. But he says this, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, but I received mercy. Why did I receive mercy? This is profound. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, that in me, as the foremost, in other words, in me, as the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in eternal life. In other words, what he's saying is, I receive mercy so that the grace of God would be revealed to others when they saw how much mercy I had received. And then he continues and he says, and and for this reason, I became a preacher and a herald of the gospel of grace. I was thinking, okay, but what does this mean like for us? What does it mean for me? And, And for me, for my life, I... I experience God's mercy most profoundly when I'm saying, God, help me with the consequences of the decisions I've made. I know God has forgiven me for that decision. It was a poor decision. I also know that God is not bound to rescue me from the consequence of that decision. But I also know that He's a merciful God. And so, and so I come to God in situations where I've made a mistake and I've repented I'm saying, God, I don't want to do that again. But because of this, I've set things into motion. And I'm asking you, I'm asking you for mercy.
I'm asking you to remove something that I know that I probably deserve. I'm asking you to remove that. And we get that. We receive mercy and grace in our time of need. The most profound thing is found in the Lord's Prayer. Because I need mercy to be forgiven. Forgive us our trespasses. Forgive us our trespasses. And you know, you would think that this whole idea of being aware of your trespasses and being aware of how much mercy you need somehow shrinks you into kind of this, this insecure human being that just walks around all bowed. Not if you listen to Paul. Because Paul says this, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. That's what we receive. God, forgive us our trespasses. We receive grace. Now, grace is receiving something we don't deserve. If mercy is not receiving what we do deserve, grace is receiving that which we don't deserve. It's something you didn't do and received a reward for it anyway. It's not getting away with something. It's, it's, it's an extra gift. And that extra gift is the, the fact that we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. So not only, is, not only has Jesus Christ taken away the penalty of our sin and shame, but he has added to us his own righteousness. And that's what the grace package is. It's actually a sense of saying, not only have I had the punishment taken away, but I have received standing with God. And we've spoken about this multiple times before. It wasn't that I was a a prisoner of sin and now just set free. I was a prisoner of sin, set free from sin, become a son and daughter of the living God. I wasn't left in this middle space. I received mercy and grace in this area. And oftentimes where I'm asking God for grace, it's in areas where I don't have those things naturally. For me, in in the context of my personality, I'm asking God, like, when I read Galatians 5.22, I'm like, I'm like depressed for the day. Because God says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, patience, self-control. And I'm like, oh, man, God, I need your grace. It's not that I'm trying to grasp something that is outside of my reach. God, I need your grace to know that I've already received that. Because your Spirit lives in me, there's joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. It's there. I need your grace to be able to see that and to be able to express that to people around me. I need your grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but it is the gift of God. And if I'm saying to God, okay, the place that I need God's mercy the most is when I'm asking God, God, please forgive me, the place where I need God's grace the most in terms of, in terms of the, the prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I need mercy for God to forgive me of my sin. I need grace to be able to help me forgive others of the hurt and wounding that they have caused me. I find mercy and grace in my time of need. 
ultimately we have to admit that we have a need. Most of us don't like to admit that. We come to the throne of grace not to just chill out. We come to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. Most of us don't like that. Some of us, (coughs) like Karen, hate asking for help. We want to do it on our own. We don't have to. We have to acknowledge our need for help. And mercy and grace are continuous needs. These are not just salvation needs that are met in one moment. This is not just at the point of conversion where you understand the goodness of God to be able to forgive you of your sin and the fact that because you have received such a, such a grace, God will empower you to forgive those that, that have sinned against you. It's not just in that one moment. It is a continuous thing. Trust me when I tell you this. If we receive grace and mercy in our time of need, we also receive purpose. Most amazing thing when Isaiah walks into that throne room is God asking him the question, who will go? Who will we send? And Isaiah, confronted with the glory of God, says, here am I, send me. Not only do we find grace and mercy. Not only do, are we reminded of our value, restored value, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we are also given purpose in the throne room. The throne room is a place where people were commissioned. The throne room is a place where people were knighted. The throne room is a place where people said, now go and do this. You are now a captain. You are now a knight. You are now whatever, because the, the king or queen has determined that you are to do this. Go in the power and authority of this king and queen and fulfill the obligations of the commission that you're given. And every single one of us have been given that same commission. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And the writer of Hebrews is going to come back all the way to say that because Jesus is our high priest, we have all become priests, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Here's the mercy aspect. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Band, you can come up. This throne is different. This throne is not a place of fear. It's not a place of showing off. It is a holy place. It is a holy place. This throne is different because of the one who sits on the throne, because of what he has done and because of what he is presently doing. This throne is where we receive grace, what we need, where mercy takes away that which we do not want. This place is a place where we receive our commission. We can have confidence, we can have boldness, not arrogance or fear, to walk boldly into his throne of grace. And why can't we do that? Because verse 9 says, And Jesus being made perfect has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. There were three degrees of separation when it came to any kind of religious work 
with regards to the Israelites. And the one was that you could worship outside in the general court. The second degree of separation was if you were a priest, you could enter the holy place, but there were only certain priests that could only enter at certain times. And once a year, if you were the high priest, you could enter the holy of holies to mediate on behalf of everyone that was not allowed to enter. Jesus is the, is the better high priest because he's given us a better throne. But the high priest had a number of different things he had to fulfill. The first was that he had to be chosen. We've spoken about this. And when you think about the choice about, sorry, when you think about being chosen, there was a sense in which the, there wasn't a sense, the, out of the priests, Aaron's staff budded. God said, this is the man that I'm choosing to be a high priest. And that was a point of privilege. To actually be the high priest was like, yeah, that's awesome. To be chosen. Except Jesus was chosen in a different way. Jesus was chosen when the crowd cried, crucify him. He was separated from Barabbas. And he was chosen to be our sacrifice. The priests had to wear this elaborate gown with all of these beautiful ornate things. They were very specific garments that they had to wear. And it symbolized the fact that they were set apart. Jesus was given a purple robe, crown of thorns, ultimately naked on the cross. The priest had to be purified. He had to make sure that he was washed, that there was that there was nothing wrong with his body, that there were no boils, that there were no cuts, that there were no scabs, and there was a series of, of purifications that had, to, that had to make sure that his body was ritually clean, and he couldn't touch anything unclean. Jesus' body was mutilated, whipped, bleeding. The priest also had to make sure that he prayed prayers to ask God to forgive him of sins that he didn't know that he had committed. So prior to entering the holy place, the priest would offer these sacrifices for the sins that he knew. But in order to make sure that he was holy, the priest would also say, if there is anything that I've done, God, please forgive me so that I can offer this sacrifice. And when Jesus is on the cross, his prayers that he offers up in the garden prayers of supplication with loud cries and tears to the only one that could save him from death. The prayer that he prayed is not God, forgive me. The prayer that he prays is God, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. This is necessary, but they don't know what they're doing. Let's come to the throne of grace. Let's come recognizing that we have need. Let's come boldly, not arrogantly. Let's come joyfully, not apathetically. Let's come with confidence, understanding that we can find grace and mercy in our time of need. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands, My name is written 
on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can but me that's departed. So yesterday, last night, my four-year-old, we were somewhere, and there was some activities um, that kind of struck her attention. Um, and she asked me, she said, Daddy, can I go over there? And there was older kids there, so she was hesitant, and I said, sure. And she looked at me, terrified, like, you go with me? And I said, sure. And I stood up, and before I could stand up, she was already gone. Um, and I have this sense that Jesus has said, go. And we, we want to enter in the throne room. We want to go there. We know we need to, to bring... Um, our things to him, whatever that is. Um, but I think there's still some hesitancy. There's some fear. Um, and if any of, if that's you, I would love to, to help you step into the throne room. Um, to help you even ask Jesus for help. Um, so as we close this morning, um, Joey and some other trusted leaders will be available to pray for you if you feel like any of those three areas um, resonate with you and that you, you feel like you have a hard time entering into the throne room because of those things. Um, for the rest of us, we can be dismissed. Uh, we will be having donuts and coffee in the back through the double doors and down the hall to the left. Um, but thank you so much, Mercy Commons, um, for setting aside your Sunday and worshiping with us Good morning. <laughs> <laughs>